Welcome to the CRISPR revolution. This is CRISPR Cuts, a podcast dedicated to the world of genome engineering. Take a break and join us as we guide conversations with an expert CRISPR cast about this cutting edge science. Hello everyone. Welcome to a new episode of CRISPR Cuts. Today we have a very special treat for you. As you all know, we had our second World CRISPR Day event recently. And as part of that, we had a Women of CRISPR panel wherein six women leaders in the field of genome editing joined us to talk about their professional journeys, including the challenges they have faced so far and how they've overcome those to reach their current status. We are making the audio of the panel interview available as a special podcast episode. But if you would like to see the video, visit www.worldcrisperday.com. You can access not just the panel video, but all other session videos there. But for now, sit back, relax, and enjoy this very informative session with the women of CRISPR. Welcome to the last session of World CRISPR Day, the Women of CRISPR panel. I'm Minakshi Prabhune, scientific marketer and communicator at Synthego, and I'll be moderating this session. Now, I have interviewed many scientists before in my journalism role, but I must say I'm especially thrilled to be moderating this power-packed panel of inspiring female leaders. First of all, not that there is ever a reason to not do an all-women panel, <laughs> enough panels for a lifetime, but let me talk about how the idea of a panel focusing on women CRISPR leaders came about. So historically, women have not had it easy in most fields, but especially in science, compared to their male counterparts. We've all seen data in some form about gender disparity, whether it's in form of wage gap or harassment issues or just biases that women have to deal with in workplaces and then yet keep moving forward. So while we have made progress over the years, slowly but surely, we thought it would be great to hear about the professional journeys from successful women leaders who have made a mark in the gene editing field and then acknowledging their challenges that they face even today and more importantly, learning how they overcome those with grit and persistence to reach their status will be inspiring and illuminating for all of us. So without much further ado, I'm going to open up the panel and let's get started. Let's start with intros. Just tell us a little bit about yourself and your work. Maybe let's start with Christina. Absolutely. Thank you so much for this uh, wonderful CRISPR World Day. Couldn't be CRISPR, I'd say, in a great panel here. My name is Christina Troll Hansen. Uh, I'm originally from Denmark. I think I was born with a strong curiosity for both science and places and people. Uh, so it brought me from epigenetics and nanoscience in Denmark to immunogenic cell death at the UC Berkeley to a postdoc also immunogenic cell death in at Insome in Paris uh, before going into industry. Finally, ending up in uh, in venture capital in uh, in Nova Holdings, uh, where I had the chance to fund a, a couple of companies that today have had good Series A rounds. One of them, I took the leadership role too. It was Ozine Therapeutics, a cell therapy company, based on, I would say, support from my co-founder, Stephen Allen Goldman. That company was acquired by Sana Biotechnology last year. I co-founded a couple of other companies, also in the CRISPR field, in the epigenome editing field, with Fyodor Ernov and Charlie Grosbeck. And right now, I'm a CEO for a Syndigo spin-out, Lyric, that's really built together with some of the leading uh, gene therapy people in, in the world, focusing on unlocking the enormous potential in large CRISPR noggin that's done in a non-viral manner. 
and combined with really exciting industrialized platforms for high throughput gene editing and uh, manufacturing. So that's super exciting and really exciting to be in this panel. Thank you. Great. Welcome, Christina. Next, let's move on to Samantha. I'm Samantha Mirage. I have had a, uh, a little bit of a different path into sciences. So I went straight from my undergrad in biology and instead of going what might be a more traditional path to get a PhD, I actually got a job at the government as a technician in a science lab. And from that, uh, while working full time, uh, did my master's at night and then uh, went away and, and did my PhD and then came back to build a program at the National Institute of Standards and Technology, which is the United States Institute for Standards. And so when I came back after my PhD through this uh, non-traditional route, um, I was tasked with where in science is there the potential to have a big impact in biology that if we could come up with standards, norms to really help this community move forward, innovate faster, innovate with confidence, that we could be really impactful as the federal government. And I said, genome editing. I said CRISPR. And at that time, people weren't that familiar. And that was 2014, like sort of in the broad, non-genetics, non-cell biology space. And started there and, and built a program at NIST to really bring together a variety of stakeholders across all sectors to come together under one umbrella and work on standards measurements, what's needed to, to really help everybody do their CRISPR science confidently. So that's the program that I lead at NIST, both on coordinating as well as running a, a scientific lab that does measurements under my leadership. So very happy to be here and, and thank you for, for including me in this great panel. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you got on CRISPR early on. That's that's awesome. Let's talk to Alison. Alison, please introduce yourself. Yes. Hello. And uh, my name is Alison Van Inenum and I'm a professor of cooperative extension at the University of California in Davis. And um, I have a very, very different path. And I've been in my position since about 2002. And before that, I actually worked for a number of years at a, a biotech company called Calgene here in Davis, which actually was responsible for the release of the first genetically engineered organism for food, the flavor saver tomato. And so I've been in biotech space for pretty much my entire career and actually even back in uh, Calgene days used zinc fingers even last century. <laughs> and so I've worked in, uh, I work in livestock breeding and my molecular lab works specifically, particularly with ruminants, so cattle and sheep. And I also am quite involved with public outreach around particularly topics of biotechnology and genetic engineering, just because basically the public controversy around those topics has really precluded access of, of livestock breeders from using these technologies. And so I'm kind of a late comer to CRISPR, I guess, for want of a better, because CRISPR didn't really come on the scene until I was late in my career. But I'm delighted to be on this panel and with ladies with such different career paths. And I'm sure we have different experiences just given our, our generational differences. But I am uh, super excited to see the potential of this technology to be used in food and agricultural production. Awesome. Yeah, it's always a delight to listen to your talks and read about your updates, Alison. So, you know, welcome. And I'm glad you're able to share with us today more about your work. Kiana, would you like to go next? Sure. Um, thank you so much for having me in this wonderful panel. My name is Kiana Aran, and uh, my background is a bit more different. So I did my undergrad in electrical engineering, which has nothing to do with biology. But I was also, you know, very fascinated with biology. And as I started doing my 
postdoc at Berkeley, I really started to work with a lot of biological elements to incorporate with the electronic uh, sensor that, that I was designing at the time. And CRISPR was one of them, where I started combining CRISPRs with transistors and really harnessing the power of CRISPR in, in searching the, the genome to find this target. And that was a start of uh, a whole panel of devices and systems that were using CRISPR as a module and a biological element and a technology that um, that was helping in amplification-free DNA detection, uh, RNA detection, and others, uh, you know, sort of devices where CRISPR was a ma- major element. And my path is basically now, it's really an, you know, intersection between biology and, and electronic. Right now, I'm an associate professor at Keck Graduate Institute, where I teach about all of these, you know, sensors, designing them. I, uh, I'm also the CSO and uh, co-founder of a um, company where we're actually trying to bring this product to the market, where we have a lot of, you know, biology-gated transistors, those are called, and where we integrate a lot of biological molecules with our transistors for various different applications. All right. Yeah, welcome, Kiana. You know, I've, we've always interacted every time your new paper comes out or whenever there's an update from your lab companies. So really excited to have you here as always. And Laura, welcome back. In, in just a few hours, you did an amazing job moderating the sessions. And now, you know, your your time to just relax and chat with us. Please reintroduce yourself for someone who wasn't at the, panel, uh, at the session before. Sure. Yeah, I'm, I'm really glad to be here. I'm glad we're having this session. I just want to say the messages coming in through the Q&A in the chat are so heartwarming. It that this panel means a lot to so many other people out there like us. So my path, just like a lot of the other women on this panel, is also non-traditional. I'm from an extremely rural background. You may notice my accent (laughs) when I talk. And first-generation college student. And I absolutely just fell head over heels in love with genetics and genome editing and just pursued it. Went straight from undergrad to my PhD at UAB, where I am now, the University of Alabama at Birmingham. And I did my PhD in the transgenic facility, and I just soaked up every bit of the technology. It still amazes me to this day, the things that we're able to do with these genomes. So I I did my postdoc there, and now I'm an assistant professor at UAB in the department that I trained in, in genetics. And um, as of this month, I became the director of the facility that I trained in. So it's been a great path and I'm living my dream right now. That's really so great to hear and so happy for you about your promotion. Congratulations. Uh, Yeah, Elena, last but not the least, our very own Synthego representative. Elena, please introduce yourself. Sure. Hi, thanks for for having me here. Yeah, my path is actually in. Similar, but but somewhat different to to many of, of the ones that you've described. I'm originally from Spain. I trained actually as a, as a chemist uh, and somehow ended up doing a PhD in functional genetics and Parkinson's disease and, and spent quite a few times in, in academia doing research back, I don't know, back in 2005 when probably there were like, I don't know, 100 micronase instead of 1,000. And then at some point, I, yeah, I transitioned out into industry and into technical technical roles, technical specialists, and, and now I'm leading the technical support team here at Synthego, where I get the chance to actually learn and, and try to support and help a lot of uh, scientists like all of you and, and many of the, the, the people that are now in our audience today with their applications, their experiments, um, whether that's, you know, cell and gene therapy, 
agriculture, um, what, whatever, whatever that is, because CRISPR is so broad and it's super exciting to, to be here. Great. Yeah. So as you all see, we really have an amazing panel. It's great that each one of you has taken a slightly different route, but I'm sure there are so many similarities that we'll come to in your experiences uh, just being women in science. So you've all accomplished so much in your field, but you know, sometimes it is easy to forget that seemingly, you know, overnight success takes really hard work and many years. So let us cover some of the challenges that you faced in your journey and, you know, how you overcame them. And I do have a few topics that I specifically want to dive into in this aspect. So science in general has been male-dominated for years, but that is specifically true for a few fields in particular. So how is it being one of the few women in your field? And I'm going to start with Alison because Alison, that's the first thing you had mentioned to me when I <laughs> mentioned this panel. So yeah, share your thoughts on that, please. Yeah, so I, I work in agriculture and, and, and particularly animal agriculture and particularly beef cattle is a very male dominated field. And also I'm Australian and so I'm a foreign uh, woman working in a very male dominated field. And so I think, uh, you know, when I first came here, um, I did my degrees at UC Davis and started a job in extension. And my job is to interact with livestock producers, which is a tall order. And so I think that you kind of go into it to work out how you can converse with people um, in a language that's that's common to you both. And so I have faced some interesting situations, I guess, would be putting it mildly over my career. But I think that the shared value I have with the people I work with is trying to improve the efficiency of agriculture and decrease the environmental footprint print. And that's something that I have in common with with all my clientele. And I feel like by kind of uh, working towards that shared goal and trying to speak in a in a language that's not alienating with, with my clientele has kind of helped me get over that bump. But it, it has taken a long time. I mean, there's no doubt that if I had been a different uh, gender, it would have been a lot easier to be taken seriously. I just think it takes longer to be taken seriously. And that's just a fact of life. Um, I feel like hopefully now they do take me seriously, but you know, I've been in my job for 20 years, so maybe I'm there. So that's, uh, I think, how, how I would answer that question. Thanks for sharing that. You know, unfortunately, I wouldn't say I'm surprised, but it's still really great to hear your positive outlook and how you've really managed to come so far where, you know, I don't think there is any doubt you're like at the top of your field. Does anyone else, maybe Laura, do you want to add something? Happy to add on to that. I think it's definitely something the majority of us have, have likely experienced, you know, walking into a room and being the only person that looks like you can be a little alienating, you know, or, or you may kind of box yourself in a little bit or be a little more insured than, than you normally would be. I would say that it's been interesting for me how my outlook has changed when I first started. I would just pretend there were no differences between, you know, either group. And, you know, we're all the same. And, and as I've evolved and grown in my profession, I've kind of come more into my own and, and I've just accepted and embraced really that there are differences and that's okay. And we're not going to treat each other differently, but, you know, I can be feminine if I want to, and that's okay. And really just like leaned into it more, I think. And in the beginning, I was like more so just like, I'm just like everyone else here. And now I'm like, no, I'm me. And I am, I do things differently. And I make the space for myself that I want to fill. Yeah, that that's, that's a great point. And, you know, to the point of entering a room and, you know, being the only person who looks different or one of the few people who look different, right? How hard is it to be a woman of color 
in science? Uh, had things changed? You know, were there any issues in your professional journey with that? Maybe, Samantha, would you like to share something? Yeah, I would say that it's it's challenging to know. It's clear sometimes to feel that you're experiencing bias, but it's challenging to know where it's coming from sometimes. So, you know, sometimes is the bias because I'm a woman? Is the bias because of the tint of my skin? Is the bias because you know how you how you perceive me? But you know, oftentimes you're like, all right, there's a there's a bias here, <laughs> and, and there's so many ways in which you know, uh, particularly as a woman that's a minority, you might be binned and you're like, okay, what is it? But I know that I'm not being treated the same as other people. And one of the ways to manage that is that to know that it might happen, like uh, whether it should happen or not, to know that, you know, these kinds of experiences happen and they might not be happening for the reason you think they are. And if you can, it's hard sometimes, but if you can be bold enough to be comfortable having a conversation and starting a conversation, sometimes you find out that it's not exactly what you think it is. And sometimes you find out it's what you think it is. <laughs> and in those instances, you have to, you know, change what you can and manage what you can. And, you know, that's sort of what what I have been trying to do, change impressions where I can and, you know, manage expectations where I can't. And then people are able to, to grow and change their perspectives as they meet and interact with people. Sometimes it's, I've never met a woman that did this before. I've, I've never met somebody like you before. And the more women that we have in the room, the more people's perspectives start changing about what they think about somebody. What does a scientist, you know, feel like, look like to them in their mind? Yeah, no, that, that's a great answer. I love how you phrased it. And Kiana, have, have your experiences been similar? Would you like to add something? Yes, I resonate a lot with what Samantha mentioned. Uh, but I also think that, you know, it's really where you shift your focus. You can really zoom in and shift your focus on how everyone is treating you and, you know, try to really correlate everything with the color of your skin or other sort of, you know, uh, cultural differences and, and, you know, diversities that, that you see and you, you might feel discriminated. But also, you know, again, you don't know where those are coming from and if those are, you know, true feelings or not. So it's, it, for me, the way that I have never felt it, if I zoom back, I would definitely, you know, can take, you know, pieces here and there where, where it's probably having discrimination. But I always try to shift my focus on the opportunities and, and what a lesson I learned. And, and those, some of them are very professional lessons that I, I needed to learn myself. So we can't change things overnight. There are discrimination, you know, there are lack of enough women in, in leadership roles. But we should agree that and, and we should accept that, you know, we cannot change everything overnight with, uh, and, or within our, you know, lifetime. But we can, you know, focus on the positive things, focus on opportunities. And, and this is how we really, you know, find ourselves moving and progressing rather than, you know, being trapped in a circle of like negative thought that there's so many limitations for us. We can't do this because there is this limitation, that limitation. Limitation always will be there, you know, either you're a woman or you have other sort of diverse background, even if you're a male, you know, everyone will experience some sort of uh, discrimination one way or the other. Now, it is what's in our control. It's our choice of, you know, really taking and focusing on those negative aspects or just like really shifting our focus to, to positive things, you know, opportunities and trying to take those and move forward. This is my, this is the way I look at things. And I think it was important for me not to be negative about things or not to feel negative. I also wanted to add that when you shift your focus and you find yourself, you know, working 
or finding workplaces that diversity and cultural backgrounds are respected. I think there's a lot of companies that are shifting their management, the way they lead their companies towards more diverse background, you know, appreciating the cultural differences. And those are those are just great to see. And it's basically leading companies that are designed for, for people. And uh, I see that shift in biotech at least, and I think it's great. So again, focusing on opportunities, focusing on the positive things and, and not allowing those things to really stop you from your progress, I think it's really important. Yeah, and I wanted to add to, uh, to Laura, what Laura said. Uh, I think it's very, very right, and it's a really good advice. You know, believe in in, in that you can uh, do your homework well, work hard, and be prepared for those meetings. Because if you come in and you be taken for what you know and what you're contributing with, you won't be seen potentially as a female in a, a male-dominated room. It takes some strength and, and courage in, in the earlier days, but the, at one point you transition into accept and embrace yourself and the diversity. So, so I think that's a really good advice. Great. Thank you all. This this has really been great because I love how all the responses are so positive. And even if you have faced anything in the past or or even present, I love it, Kiana, the way you said it, just keep it aside and keep moving forward with the positive stuff. And I, I love that work ethic and just life ethic uh, that, that you have. When I was thinking of challenges that I want to touch upon, I'm in the process of my visa renewal. So, you know, enough said. I The first thing I thought of was immigration challenges. So maybe, Elena, do you want to talk about immigration challenges <laughs> and how that impacts your professional journey? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, I, as I said, I'm, I'm originally from Spain. I, I actually I moved to the UK, which was early enough so that it was uh, straightforward within the European Union. So I didn't have any, any immigration issues, but still, like, it was, it's not my mother tongue, right? So there is always this bias of the name is different, the surname is different. People may have issues like, you know, how do I even call you? And then I moved to the States. It's now probably six years, five, six years ago. And, and yeah, it is challenging, right? Because it, there is, uh, when you're in academia, it's, it's, it's easy and, and normally, you know, you get your visa, it's fine. But the moment you need to step out and go into industry, there is a lot of uncertainty on whether you're able to, you know, to, to land the job you want, if, if that's going to, you know, play against you on top of all of the um, cards that, that you already think that, that you have against, right? Like, maybe sometimes being a woman, sometimes being of some other minority. It's just one other factor that, that is kind of constantly there. Um, and, and yeah, you just I would say the same thing. It's important to just focus on the, on the positive and try to keep moving, keep pushing. It's true that sometimes it takes twice the effort or three times the effort, but I think hopefully with time, that the different that delta is it's narrowing and it's becoming smaller. So that, that's at least in, in my experience how I, I try to see things and, and just kind of find a way to keep moving. All right, that's that's great. Alison, you mentioned you know you moved from Australia. Did did you have any immigration issues at the time? So I actually moved here before I had even done my graduate degrees and so I had no job skills. Um, and so actually I ended up during my master's marrying my husband who's American. So I got my green card that way. And I think we've been married for 32 years now. So I guess that that was one way to get a green card. But I did, uh, right before I had met him, just 
being in the country and you know you you actually can't work without a green card and so it it's it's hard for people from all countries to get it and that was obviously over 30 years ago now but yeah it's it's a, a challenge you know moving to a new country irrespective of which country it is and and people with language problems obviously doubly hard but you leave your support networks everything you know and you're you're reinvent yourself basically and it's it's if, if you're not an expat i think it's hard to appreciate what a big change that that actually is and uh, it's something that i think the expat community always has in common with each other because you, you kind of know what that's like to to be to go out on your own it's a distraction uh, for sure going through that uh, process but um on a positive note, I got my O1, the second one, <laughs> just a, a month back. So I've been going through that uh, that process. I think, in general, it makes you stronger going through those uh, processes for for sure. And and you start to move your boundaries, your comfort zones. And and when, once it's there, it's a good thing. So I think what we can do with those experiences is giving it on uh, to people that are maybe going through the same situation that needs a hand or at least a little bit of shoulder to to say it's going to be all right uh, i've been there and when you're on the other side it's uh, it'll be okay yeah no, absolutely makes sense going back to you elena you identify as a member of the lgbtqi community has that ever been you know any issue related to that? How do you, or has that never been a part of your professional life at all? That's an interesting question. And when we were going over the, the prep for this panel, I was actually thinking about it. I I guess it goes back to uh, some of the things that, that Samantha and, and, and Kiana have, have mentioned, right? that sometimes you feel there is a bias. You don't know exactly if it's because of I'm a foreigner, I'm a woman. It's, it's just hard to tell. I don't think I don't or I don't feel that it has been a major issue at least in in, in my career path for for what I can tell or even now thinking retrospectively I do feel that most of the the bias that I can now identify looking back are mainly um, gender related and just because for women sometimes it, it's just harder you cannot you cannot hide it <laughs> it's pretty obvious but yeah I don't I don't feel that that has been relatively impactful in, in my career. I am pretty open about it for quite some years now. And I just, yeah, it just takes a little extra energy sometimes when people ask for your partner or your husband. And it's like, well, you just have to take the extra energy to to address that and, and correct that. Which, again, it's it's one more, small, one more small thing that takes energy. But I think slowly, slowly it's been normalized and people are much more mindful, much more aware there's much more openness, like, you know, consciousness about using and asking for people's preferred pronouns, which is, was something that, I don't know, 10 years ago, and especially if I go back like, to Spain, probably no one was, was asking or, or, or talking about. So it, it has changed a lot, and I think for the better. So I'm very optimistic as to where, where we're headed, actually, in that, in that sense. Great. I'm glad to hear that. That's never really been an issue. And also, as you said, even if it has just the spirit of, you know, keeping it as just one more thing you deal with uh, is, is one way to move forward, I guess. Let's just switch gears a little talking about, you know, the professional mix uh, all of you bring is really diverse. And we have panelists from the industry, some of you in academia and, and Samantha in the government, right? So let's talk about, uh, do you feel some, some of the, just your day-to-day life or the professional journey kind of different in one way versus the other. Maybe, Samantha, you can start with like, how, how do you feel 
about that working in a government institution? Have you considered or tried out, you know, other aspects and uh, what, what's unique in your work environment? NIST is a very, me personally at NIST, it's a very unique place. And if it's a good fit for you, there's like no other organization in the United States that does that. So people tend to, if it's a good fit, people tend to like stay for a long time. And it's a good fit for me. So I haven't, um, you know, I haven't had experiences in industry or in academia, just many colleagues in those other sectors. But because of what I just described, and, and a lot of times in government, people spend a long time in government, a lot of ideas and concepts about women, women in science, that can, it can be very stagnant in the government because you have people that have been there for a really long time and they grew up a certain way and they think a certain way and science used to be done a certain way and there didn't used to be a whole bunch of women around and they were comfortable with that. And, you know, it's it's very hard to get change when um, when there isn't a lot of, of turnover and there aren't always a, a lot of new ideas coming into the room. Um, so I'll say that's one thing that I think maybe that's that's a bit shared with academia, but I think in government, it's a very, it's a very, uh, hard thing to, to make those changes happen and to to convince people about new normals and ideas and um, because they grew up and sort of when you sort of ingrain things it's uh, it was at a certain time and that's what life was like and uh, that's one of the things that I, that I would say even policy wise it's a challenge formally to get say policies to change within the federal government versus socially the way people say we should do or we shouldn't do and we should adapt. So that, that's one of those sorts of things. But it's definitely a work in progress. There are those of us that try to push forward and we're present and we're in the room and, you know, band together to give a voice to, to various things. Yeah. Uh, you know, just thinking about it, it's interesting that there's a huge difference between, uh, as you said, things can go really slowly when you're trying to make these big changes. And then, Christina, you know, you, you mentioned being in leadership positions at a lot of startups and, you know, that's a very fast-paced environment. Can you, like, compare and contrast the, uh, like, how your work life is? Yeah, absolutely. I would say, in uh, again, it's a very innovative uh, area. And, and, of course, I mean, being in, in this area, in industry, there's been a lot of focus over the past many years, both in terms of, of you can getting more females in the board. I think the awareness has sort of been been building over time, I will still say that you can say there's uh, still far more both uh, male uh, VCs and, and uh, male uh, bosses uh, out there. Uh, but I think it's it's changing with some of the rules that put in place. I still, you know, uh, would like to emphasize that I think if you if you can do your job and, and if you're the best at it, you deserve to take the, the position. With that said, uh, I would always be supportive of, uh, of females. And I get a lot of support from my male uh, mentors and female mentors out there to, to you know, push forward, to seek opportunities, uh, to believe in myself and, and, and to take on the responsibility it is to be a, a CEO. And, and I think about it in my daily job, you know, when I'm dealing with um, company buildings with stressful situations with many personalities and, and I want to help and nurture and, and grow people and also, uh, of course, uh, females and males to the same extent in, in, in my organizations. Um, but definitely faster changes there, I think, than compared to what Samantha is uh, is um, uh, describing. Yeah. And Alison, you, you were in the industry before. You switched to academia. I've probably been many years in academia. How is the comparison or uh, how has the change been for you? 
Yeah, I guess um, so. I I actually started in private industry for a very strange reason, um, and that was I was still breastfeeding my my kid, and I had to take a job that was in nursing range of where I lived, <laughs> and so I had done my genetics PhD in animals and genetics, and so. There was a job at Kelgi, which is a plant genetic company, and I'm like, I can do that. Doesn't matter. It's DNA, right? And so that was back at the turn of the century. <laughs> Sounds terrible, but it was true. And so I ended up there for three years. And during that time, it actually got um, purchased by Monsanto, which is a whole another story for another day. But then um, the job came up in academia to do animal genetics, which of course is my preferred kingdom and also to do public outreach and extension which is my love and so it was kind of a no-brainer to take the job. I guess I do have that contrast so I think what I liked about industry was money like all the lab supplies were just there. I didn't have to write grants for them and they had really nice machines and it was just you know you could just go do your research but you had to do the research they wanted you to do and academia i love that i get to do the research i want to do what i hate about it is there's no money <laughs> and so i have to write grants to do all of that so that's tiring so i think you know having control of your own destiny is really nice in academia and having your research fully funded and going home at 5 p.m was certainly my experience although i was exhausted with a new baby when i was in private industry so i think they both have their pros and cons and it's really what suits your personality. I've, I'm very happy in academia after 20 years in my field in animal science. And now I get to work with cows instead of Arabidopsis, which is just way better in my opinion. <laughs> yeah, no, no, for sure. Uh, cows are way cuter. Uh, I, I see the photos you keep posting on Twitter and it's they're adorable. Uh, you did mention one thing, which I actually was really my next point about, you know, being a working mom. And I wouldn't even necessarily say like that is a challenge but it is a factor that you consider sometimes in what job you take or where you can move or you know basically in some sense it, it is a part of your professional decisions so maybe Alison can you speak to how has it been like being a working mom for you and then maybe Laura you can also comment on that yeah, I, I, so I chose to have my kids, well, I mean, they come when they come really, but at the end of my PhD and then my second one whilst I was working at Calgene, which was a private company, which was really nice because they have a lot of support. I, I think it's a good place to have kids, private industry. And then I started my job when my kids were little, like two, when I started at, at the university. And so that was just how it happened for me because of how jobs were. So I think when the kids were little, I didn't travel very much. Yes, I was at my job but I, I was home with them and, and doing everything you have to do. And really, that slowed me down tremendously at the beginning of my career. But that's, that's okay. I, I, you know, I, I had to be there for them. And I have a tremendously supportive spouse. So that was good. But once they were in school, and that freed things up. And then I feel like at that stage, women are like these multitasking wizards that are so used to like, you know, multitasking, that they come into their own because, you know, once the kids get a little bit older, you can put all of that multitasking energy into your career and then it just whew, takes off from there. So certainly slowed me down, but, you know, that's fine. That's a price I happily paid. Yeah, oh, absolutely. I definitely want to talk about this. I have a, a five-year-old son and a two-year-old daughter and it's hard. It is so hard. And in the beginning, so just like Allison, I, I had my son when I was in graduate school. 
I don't know why I did that. But there's honestly no good time when as a woman in science to have a child. There's no break point where it's like, if I can just make it to here, you know, things will be good. So just went for it. And, you know, I'm on this call and I just realized there's a child toy in the background behind me, you know, and and I've just become much more forgiving of myself for things like that. Whereas when I first started, like it's similar to my the other experience I was describing, I put this pressure on myself to pretend, uh, okay, when I'm at work, I'm a scientist. And when I'm at home, I'm a mom. And as I've grown more into it and grown more confident, I'm like, no, I'm both all the time. That's me. And so I, I actually enjoyed that facet of, of remote work with seeing more people have their baby and their Zoom call and it becoming more normal and um, less of like this unspoken thing of I need to leave early to go pick up my child. I'm sorry. You know, it's, now it's just kind of we can encourage people to be more open about it, take the time they need to support their families, take your kids to the doctor when you need to, you know, things like that. And it, it is extremely difficult to balance. But I think that being at UAB has been really great. My mentor was extremely supportive of me and, you know, my choice to start a family when I did and he worked with me as needed. So I've just been really fortunate in that way. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. This is, you know, I I can only imagine, but it's, uh, you know, it's again, one more thing that you, you know, is, is into the daily things that you think about or don't think about and try to keep aside. But yeah, it's been great hearing your experience about it. I did want to talk about, you know, we obviously spoke about how you have overcome these challenges and all of you have reached, you know, a certain status. You're already uh, like, amazing in your field. I specifically want to talk about promotions. I noticed Laura and Elena recently have gotten promoted. So let's let's start with them to talk about, you know, how can women ensure moving forward in their careers? Do you have any tips for that? Maybe Elena, you can share. Yeah, sure. I, I can I can speak a little bit about that. I mean, I think being in a startup, right, like Cynthia, uh, it's very fast paced. There's a lot of gaps that need to be filled. I think in my case, at least, it's probably a combination of one, just really willing to help and move, keep things moving forward and, and preventing things from like crashing and just making sure that, that we can deliver and filling in those gaps shows that you can actually do the work and then come gain recognition, right? So it is true that sometimes you need to speak up and, and you need to ask sometimes for, for what you need. But, but sometimes it's, at least for me, I'm, I'm naturally an introvert. I'm not like too much about like speaking about myself or what I do. And here I am in this panel. But in general, I'm much more of like, you know, I'm just going to do my work. And obviously having Alice helps a lot. Having a mentor or a colleague that, that you know, can also speak up for you makes it easier. And just a combination of, of things, honestly, but, but I would say mainly just being willing to, to help and to, to fill in the gaps that are that you just see. And even if it's not your job, it's okay. I mean, someone needs to be fine. I'll do it. Right? And, and then it just comes. Okay. Laura, has your experience been similar? Or, you know, has there been more of like, ask for what you want versus like, work and you'll get it eventually? Oh, yeah. I think it's such a mix of both. I mean, there's a lot, just like, like anyone, male or female in science, you keep your head down, you get the work done. In my case, you make the animal models and, you know, and, and you see the benefits of that. And 
for me, it was really important to echo what uh, Kiana said, is when you say someone explains something to you that you already know, or someone talks over you in a meeting or something like that, you just keep going and just let it roll off your shoulders and do, you know, do the plan that you put forward because you know you can trust it and you know you can trust your thought process and have confidence in yourself and just keep pushing forward. And it's okay to have bad days every now and then and say, you know what, today, you know, this happened today and it made me feel bad. And then come back tomorrow and start again. Yeah. And, and I, I would say I also look really a lot for, you know, people uh, speaking up for themselves. You know, if somebody is coming and, and asking me, I would really love to learn more about this, you know, raise your hand and maybe participate in, in projects that is outside your comfort zone. That's really important to, to, to grow yourself, to grow your skills, believe in that you can do it, because if you don't believe in it, who should believe in it? Uh, elsewise? So be brave and and uh, and also have humility and, and and be excited about what you do. It's it's so clear to see. You know, great great tips from all of you. It's it's really uh, great to hear how you have done the same in your professional development. And you know, we see the results. So I'm I'm sure people are taking notes. Speaking of promotions and accolades, uh, Kiana, I want to congratulate you for being among the final six shortlisted women for the Nature Research Awards for inspiring women in science. So that is super exciting. Uh, and not just because it's great to be recognized, but also that you get a platform that you can use to inspire young female scientists. So could you speak more to the role of such awards and the different ways in which they benefit the community at large? Yes, sure. I was not expecting that question. <laughs> but um, yes, absolutely. I think, um, I think uh, you know, creating programs where you, you put the women in leadership roles together to not only just, you know, like for prizes, but also to see how these women can can play a, a role model for other women. Because, you know, I think the way it's going right now in the majority of the, the industry, when we want to promote women, we ask the question in a way that, how does it feel like working in a male-dominated environment? I think that's there is some sort of a negativity in that question because it, it shifts your focus toward what you don't have, right? Whereas when you bring role models where where they have gotten to leadership position, where they have worked hard, where they have overcome many challenges in their life, and they all like you know like you know other women, they have they've been mothers, they had you know all this like minority problems and and immigration, and you see them have overcome those obstacles and, and have gotten to a, to, a place, to a place where they can be leaders and role models for others. I think, you know, creating a sort of platform from, you know, um, journals like Nature, which has taken really nice step towards that, and other journals where uh, you introduce this woman, you create a platform for other people to join this, um, this platform to basically, you know, have have role model and have mentorship from from this woman. It's it's uh, it's really great because we have to really break through our path and and find ways to get where we are today. But not everyone has to repeat the same thing. You know, we have to we can share some of those experiences with others. We we can you know we can teach the lesson we learn to these younger women and uh, and create a platform that that could be really you know uh, a gateway for women to become you know more leaders. Uh, Christina mentioned that. 
you know, there's a lot of interest in having women in board, you know, sitting, uh, having a board seat, right? <laughs> Even if the company, you know, VCs or companies are interested in, in, in creating those sort of environments, you can't find those women. Where are they, right? Because for men, there is all of these, you know, background experiences that they have gotten, so it's easy to search for those people. But there are no programs that can help women, you know, navigate through the path to actually get to those roles, right? And the majority of the women that you see have gotten to those roles is, is through, you know, creating their own companies and, and being on the sea level and then getting to um, having a board seat. And there are not many of them, right? But imagine if you can create programs where, where um, you can educate women, where, you know, you can provide them with your experiences. It would be great younger female scientists or, or um, you know, other females that are interested in those type of positions to to basically decide on their path, but not only just decide and, and want things, but also have a pathway of how do I gain these experiences? You know, what do I need to do to get where I am? Where can I find those resources? And I think, you know, events like what nature has created, it's uh, it's an amazing, uh, you know, platform for that. So um, I don't know the results of that on, on the top six, but um, we'll know by end of the month. Hopefully. We are absolutely rooting for you, Kiana. So, you know, Fingers crossed that we'll hear some great news from you soon. But yeah, no, really great points. And and I do want to take audience questions. We've really been getting really good questions from the audience. I have one last thing that I do want to touch upon. Um, many of you mentioned having mentors or like having help from mentors, right? And I have heard this, or many of us have heard this in multiple cases where uh, just having a mentor has been great for professional development for people. Now, I know the common question as well that comes with it. Can you speak to the role of mentorship in your careers? And then also, how do you find a mentor? I think that's probably what a lot of people end up asking. So yeah, anyone who wants to jump in with that. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to, uh, to to start out. I think it's a matter of keeping an, an, an open mind. Of course, again, do your job uh, well. If you run into people that you are looking up to and, and really think, okay, this is, could be a good role model, a mentor, a mentor, why not ask? See if there is time for it or say, I have a question or you know, reach out uh, over time. So I think I've only had success with that. Of course, sometimes it's hard to for people to find the time to really take it a, a, as a serious mentor role, but you can have a number of people that can support you uh, through uh, development, females, males in different areas. It's super important. I think uh, in identifying those that really also can stretch you and, and that you, you believe in, that believe in you and, and give you extra responsibility is, is really going to be important for your growth. And then practice your own mentorship. I think that's really important too, because in, even in, in this forum here, it's an opportunity for us to, you know, potentially help each other, help other people and bringing on, as uh, Kirana said, uh, share your stories and give, give back with generosity when you sort of progress through time. But it really starts out with reaching out and not being afraid of, of reaching out to people that have been doing extraordinary stuff. I want to add to what Christina mentioned, uh, because Christina, you mentioned... Um, you know, have your own style of mentorship, right? So I, I'm actually learning how to adjust my style of mentorship because the way I used to mentor my female scientists, especially those that were shy, I would just actually put them in meetings where they have to talk with experts who are like 20 years, have more experience than them. And sometimes it worked really well, you know, and uh, then my colleagues were calling it shock therapy. And uh, so I <laughs> really, really adjust that uh, method. And, um, and now I'm trying to, you know, make sure that mentorship is sort of a mutual agreement between you and your mentees. And 
what they really want and how much they can basically push the boundaries. I still push the boundaries, you know, more than what it should be. And then I, I basically pull back a little bit. But I find it very, you know, useful because um, it's like, unless you're there, unless you experience this, you don't, you can't overcome that fear because I had the same path, uh, you know, uh, overcoming that fear when I was, even, you know, the first years of my postdoc where I was, you know, pitching to VCs, I found myself extremely, you know, vulnerable and, and uh, not comfortable. And the more I did it, the more I got comfortable. So I thought, okay, putting my mentees directly in the situation and basically give them that shock therapy would just help them get them what they want to get past. But don't practice that. That's not a good way to do it. Great tip on what not to do. A- anyone who, who just has had good mentors, has been a mentor, uh, want to share? Yeah, I just want to add one thing. I think it's really important, especially those of us that have that different experiences to see, you know, where we can, even if we don't feel like we're at X stage, you don't have to be at whatever stage to be a mentor, to be a role model, to be a support to somebody else. Um, and I benefited greatly because my mentor saw herself in me, somebody who had an undergraduate degree and came directly into science as a technician. And because somebody else had an experience where they went back to school and they did that, she was able to encourage me and, and give me a path I had no concept was a possibility um, for me at the time and continued that relationship. Um, I didn't realize at the, the moment I was being mentored, <laughs> but that's that's what was happening. And then later on, I actually formally asked her, um, like Christina was saying, I said, hey, will you, will you mentor me? And tried to be really respectful of whatever time you know she was able to give me. And I have to say, she's fantastic and, and continued to do that and be a role model. And she was just today had her confirmation hearing to be the director of NIST and Undersecretary of Commerce, um, Lori Lucasio, and has just been a fantastic mentor, not just in the biological sciences, but chemistry. And, you know, when we find those people, I think we need to celebrate them, connect them, and so that everybody can benefit because not all, those of us that have had good mentors, not everybody knows what that looks like. And I think it just can be really encouraging to see there are people out there like that. Yeah, I'd like to add on if we have an extra second for this topic. I think it's a really good one. I would say that um, both of the major mentors that I've had in my life as an academic, I found them by looking for the person that I wanted to become. I wanted to be a geneticist. I found a geneticist. She happened to be a woman. I wanted to run a transgenic facility. I found a director. He happened to be a man. Both fantastic mentors that changed my life and saw something in me. And I've noticed now being a faculty member and looking for you know my faculty mentorship committee. I look for the women that I study when they're in a meeting with me and I want to be like them. And so I've just kind of noticed that trend in myself of, you know, you look for the next person that you want to be. And like the other ladies were saying, you don't be afraid to reach out and try to connect with them. A lot of times they're they're looking for someone that they see themselves in. Yeah, I, I want to add a little bit to that if, if possible. But, but yeah, I agree. Most people are actually really flattered when you actually ask them for, for advice and guidance. I, I like to think of mentors almost like as a board of advisors. So I would say ideally you want to have, you know, maybe handful of them and you may not reach to to every single one of them for the same problems or or, or guidance that that you need at, at different points throughout your life but look for that person and, and those, that, that 
people that inspire you trust. And I would say the ones that when you come up with questions don't necessarily give you the answers, but they make you the right questions so that you get your answers. Because right? for me, that's the best, at least in my view, the best mentorship that I got. And uh, it's, it's always been people that have taken the time to make me think and, and to find the answers for, for myself. Because right? no one can tell you what's best for you going to do A or B. Only you know, you just need someone that helps you get to that decision. Great. These have been really great tips on, you know, finding a mentor, being a mentor. And I I love what you said, Samantha. Sometimes you probably have a mentor. You don't realize it immediately. So nurture those relationships if you have someone who's helping you out and, you know, look for the next you. Thanks, Laura. So yeah, really all great points. Uh, I do want to take one question from the audience. So Vera asks, do you find it difficult to be taken seriously when presenting new CRISPR ideas or technology? Uh, or do you find that this issue is no longer as significant as it was historically? It's not addressed to anyone in particular. So anyone who wants to jump at it? I'll start. In my experience, it was difficult for me to be taken seriously when I didn't take myself seriously. And then after I felt like I knew what was going on and I trusted myself, I could go in front of anyone and tell them the plan, whatever it was that I had decided to do. Or I would just go do it and then come show up and show them the results. (laughs) So I think it's ultimately not, I mean, that's an oversimplification, but it does somewhat come from within when you're talking to any group of people. Uh, Alison, you know, CRISPR and cattle, is that now something that people are kind of you know, okay with, or, or do you still find some resistance in that uh, when you do bring out new ideas? Well, that's a long answer to that question. <laughs> so, you know, the whole GMO debate has really forestalled, uh, well, research for a number of years was not allowed in this field. Uh, if you're working on food animals, which I think many, maybe people that work in rodent models didn't appreciate that that was pretty much off the table for most of my career. And with with CRISPR, I I think there was a new hope, or not just CRISPR, but genome editing reagents, that this wouldn't be treated like transgenics. And unfortunately, that's that's not what's come to play. And with the FDA's ruling that uh, everything's going to be regulated as a new animal drug. So, you know, I think that that is going to add an extra level of um, complexity to any type of food animal commercialization and adds the level of suspicion, I think, that will make it difficult to actually be able to use these technologies in food animal breeding programs. And that's very frustrating for me. I guess I've I've been in this field a long time and and to have an amazing technology like this potentially railroaded at this stage of my career is really frustrating. So yeah, I I don't think the public has had a chance to vote because there's no products on the market. And I fear we won't have any products on the market because of the way the regulations are set up. Right. Let's take another one, which is uh, really interesting. Some of you have already spoken to that, but what do you do in your lab or companies to encourage uh, women? So Christina, you mentioned a little bit, but maybe if you could elaborate on, you know, special things that you think of in that sense. So what what is a, what I do that is encouraged? Encouraging? Yeah, exactly. That, uh, you know, to support women in your lab, you know, wh- what are the steps or concrete ideas maybe that you have for that? Yeah, absolutely. No, I, I think um, I think I'd like I like to share uh, my story. That's one part. I'd like to listen to listen, provide some sort of a safe space to to hear about ambitions, dreams, ideas, and 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 try not to to judge. If there is any way I can help, sort of making those dreams come true or sort of shape a path as a mentor, as we talked about, 
that's uh, something that I really like to prioritize. So for me, I, I work at the intersection between both academia and industry. So one thing that I found really, really helping uh, my female mentees to gain self-confidence is that you get them involved, you make you teach them how to collaborate with, with people who are technically are not as high as them and people who are technically higher than them because this is the way they gain knowledge from people who have more technical expertise and can learn to transfer their knowledge to people who are you know don't have the technical expertise. So it's a really win-win situation in both aspects, teaching them how to become a better technical person, but also teach them how to become a better mentor at the same time. And, uh, you know, getting them involved in in meetings and, uh, you know, where various different aspects of technology is discussed, business is discussed, it it really boosts the self-confidence in my female mentees. And I really have seen how they, you know, they just find their path, They, they can, you know, relay to like you know what do they want to do which part of this uh, path is more exciting to them and you know you get to a point that that you see them how they flourish in terms of you know technical skills as well as you know leadership skills i think giving providing those opportunities for them you know teaching them how to be accountable and uh, you know mainly like you know uh, build the self-confidence in them by getting them involved in, in high-level meeting, by teaching them how to collaborate. And those are really important in boosting their self-confidence in a way that they feel that they have earned it you know, themselves. I think this is really powerful. I'd like to add a little bit to, to that if possible. Yeah. So I'm actually very pleased to, to say that, that at Synthigo, we we actually are trying to do our homework. It's hard sometimes. You have to open your books and look at the numbers. How many women do we have in in the company at all? Like overall, how many women do we have in leadership positions? And we have a diversity committee. We have a women inclusion network. So we try to at least bring awareness of some of these challenges that, that we've discussed Speaking at meetings, being you know, being spoken over in, in, in meetings, or being the only woman in in the room, negotiating. So, so bringing awareness and and having allies within the whole company to be able to discuss these issues openly and in a safe space, I think it makes a huge difference. And and it shows people that you know, if they have actually any issue, they can. They can come forward and they have people that they can talk to, that they can uh, reach out to for support. Well, I just like to add one more thing that with the people that I that I work with, both that I mentor and, and just like my other colleagues, I try to teach them some of the philosophies that I think create a safe space. And I have a philosophy about care about the person first. You know, you're a person, Laura touched on this, that you're a whole person and that your whole person is coming to work every day and going home and when we can normalize that you're a person, that you're a woman, that you don't have to turn on and off and create a safe space. So part of what I try to do is create a safe space to have that dialogue about the challenges because you, a lot of times, particularly some of the earlier careers, they want to prove themselves. They want to show that, you know, they can because, you know, they know, at least when I was was coming up, I, I had to be better than the boys in order to get my place. But when you're trying to be better than the boys, it's very difficult to feel like you can be vulnerable and be honest about some of the things that you're dealing with. And I try to make sure that I can create that safe space for them. Of course, all the opportunities technically, but that safe space so that people aren't choking on the things they don't feel like they can say. 
All right, great. Yeah, this this has been really uh, great. I'm glad all of you chimed in. Uh, I have one last question before we close out. So, could you comment on uh, work life balance in your position, and is that variable? Has that you know? Does it change depending on your job, or do you really just set boundaries and you know fit your work within that? Uh, so, yeah, floor is open for anyone who wants to jump in. I can go first. Okay. Um, for me, that doesn't exist. You know, for me, I, I, I love my job and I love what I do. And I, there is no, you know, as a scientist, you cannot turn off your brain. And I think it's a lie if someone says that they can do that. But then also being uh, cognizant about how does that impact your loved ones and, and try to merge the two becomes important. And uh, this is what I have tried to do. You know, it's, um, it's finding ways to bring something that I love to do to, to my family. And, uh, you know, that can range from when he was a child, you know, as a uh, nighttime, as a, a bedtime story, to like, you know, discussing scientific topics with him you know, or doing even in terms of activities, trying to, you know, select activities that I also want to do. So it becomes more enjoyable. And, um, you know, it's hard. I mean, it's... Uh, uh, it's hard to like really separate the two because I think as science, science becomes our life, right? It's just that, you know, how do you bring people who can become uh, a part of that, that life, you know, selecting the right partner, you know, having the ability to, to merge your scientific excitement with your, with your family. So you don't have to worry about, okay, I have to, I have to shut down my brain now. And I have to, you know, as uh, Laura said, you can't just be a mother or be a scientist. You are both, you know, you can't just be a wife or a scientist. You're both right. And, uh, you know, cook scientifically, you know, raise your children scientifically and, and bring science to your life. It's just find ways to, to merge it too, because there is no separation. I, I actually find the expression really bizarre because when I'm at work, I'm not dead. Uh, and so it seems like it should be, I don't know, work leisure balance or something. But I always feel like, well, I, you know, work's kind of part of life. And so I, I think the, the dichotomous framing is rather bizarre. Okay. And you I completely echo uh, Kiana. And, and, and I think, you know, being in, in such situation is a, an extremely fortunate place to be. And we should embrace that. Okay. I think, you know, with that, we'll close the panel. You guys have been really great. I, I love all the discussions we've had. And I, I could have gone on with a lot more questions. And I'm sure we all have so much more to discuss. But this has still been really insightful. So thank you for sharing your perspectives, uh, all the panelists. Thanks for listening to CRISPR Cuts. I invite you to check out the Synthigo blog, The Bench, for more great CRISPR content. Please send us any feedback you have by contacting us on Twitter. And if you want to join in as a guest on our podcast, email us at crispercuts at synthigo.com. CRISPR Cuts is a scientific podcast by Synthigo. Produced by Kevin, Minu, and me, Bobby. Additional production by Resonate Recordings. Our cover art is by Jeff Merrick. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you soon. Thank you.